Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Last time we talked, we talked a little bit about multitasking, a little bit about multitasking Mm -hmm. uh, as it relates to distraction, the inner distractions, and to a certain extent, outer distractions. But in this episode, we're going to really get down to brass tacks about multitasking in the human mind, and if ultimately it is even possible. That's right, because you know we all do it at all times. In fact, I bet a lot of you out there right now are listening to us and doing something else. And, of course, we do that, right? I mean, when I'm working on something, I'll tend to listen to music or podcasts. Mm -hmm. Um, So in one way, you could say that as a society, we can't uh, not multitask just because of, of, of where we are. Yeah, it is a busy, busy world. We we inevitably complicate our lives with this endeavor and that endeavor. We have, you know, we have family and home and relationship stuff we need to take care of. We have bills we need to take care of. There's stuff around the house. There are pets who are pooping in boxes, and those boxes <laughs> need to be cleaned out. We have jobs. We have we have transportation we have to take. There there are varying levels of news that we ideally want to keep an eye on and then we have recreations and we have passions that we wish to pursue as well it's true and if you're lucky you have a few of those things that are so satisfying that when you engage in them everything else can fade away for a little bit and you can sort of turn off the chatter turn off the the multitasking noise like like in researching this i couldn't help but think about the the default uh, network that we talked about a little bit about Mm -hmm. the 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 endless chatter and about uh, um loops that have not been closed, mm-hmm. these little things in our lives that we haven't checked off yet, so they're always resonating when we see that person or drive by that building or whatever the case may be. We have we have all of this stuff just chattering in the background. Yeah, and as you had alluded to, when we get in that flow state, when we unitask, um, that is when we can experience the chattering just kind of going away, right? Because right. you get into that lovely state where you're only doing one thing and you're really enjoying it, but most of the time... We are dipping our fingers and our thoughts in a multitude of things, and we think we're good at it, but we are not. We're going to discuss more about that today. And I love that you said you mentioned unitasking because it instantly brings my mind to um, to cooking and the idea, of course, that a unitasker is an, a kitchen object that has only one purpose. And certain food people um, tend to frown on the idea of a unitasker because it's like it's a wasted gadget. Like, why do you have a melon baller? It can only be used for melon balling. When you could use, you know, something else that can have multiple functions, because it, it, it's actually turned out in some of the experiments we we looked at, or so I guess more in the commentary on some of the experiments we looked at, um, cooking uh, like a really busy uh, professional uh, restaurant uh, kitchen mm-hmm. is often considered an environment where multitasking uh, shines, where if, if you if multitasking is possible and people can do it or at least try to do it, that's one of the places you want to because there's so many different tasks, so many different uh, meals being prepared mm-hmm. in varying uh, arrangements for different tables and only so many instruments and ingredients with which to create it all. Well, now some people might argue that those people are super taskers, and we talked about that in the last podcast, but some other people might say it's pretty rote because you're doing the same ingredients, the same recipes over and over again. And mm-hmm. things, if you've ever been inside a professional kitchen or you work in one, you already know that things are already set forth pretty clearly. The missing scene is already set up for each station. In other words, everything is where it needs to be. So it becomes a lot more uh, a lot more intuitive to, to do that work. 
But the rest of us, the 99% of us, right, who are not supertaskers, uh, who tend to go about our day in a haphazard way, sometimes we think we're good at this uh, multitasking. But just as an example of, of how we are not, I wanted to bring up email voice. Okay. This okay. is like the Siri thing, right? The what? The Siri thing. No, no. Phone. This is, have you ever been on the phone with someone? Okay. You're having an engaging conversation. You're pouring your heart out. Okay. Okay. They're with you. They're with you. And all of a sudden, uh, someone seems suddenly disconnected and they start to go, um, what? Huh? Uh-huh. That. And then you hear tapping in the background and you realize, oh, oh my God, you're email. emailing uh-huh. as I am pouring out, uh, this, this darkest secret of my life to you. Oh, I, you know, I don't know that I've encountered it personally, but maybe they're just clacking really quietly. I have to say that there are a number of people in my life who are multitaskers, uh, particularly when it comes to the phone. So I have I have noticed this, but I think all of you out there probably have experienced this at one point or another. So it comes back to this idea that you really can only do one task well at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, even something as rote as talking on the phone can be impaired if you're trying to do something like emailing or reading or something. Yeah, I, I have. I do have to say that there have been some individuals that I've that I've interviewed either for this podcast or for news stories, and there'll be a point where I'm like, oh my goodness, they're driving a car. There, yeah. there's no way I'm going to get some good copy out of them. Like um, a recent one I did, I'm not going to out them as having driven for the first portion of the the interview, and I ended up not using that that part because unsurprisingly. He was much better once he stopped driving his car. But there was this one virtual reality dude who was kind of like the hot shot. Uh, like a, he's a little older now, but like especially back in the, the the early days of virtual reality, he was a real uh, superstar. You know, he was doing some photo shoots for for uh, the different tech magazines and all. And I remember interviewing, and I'm like, oh my goodness, he is in a convertible. He's driving down, <laughs> and I'm imagining like you know like a highway out of fear and loathing, and he's chatting with me about virtual reality. He gave me some great copy, but he was driving a convertible at at God knows what speed. So better, I think, in a convertible than in the bathroom. Have you ever, has mm-hmm. someone ever taken you to the bathroom while they've been on the phone? No, I mean I've heard people doing it here at work, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, but luckily nobody has uh, has has revealed themselves as doing that during an interview. It's amazing to me. It's a sanctuary. You probably shouldn't bring other people in with you, even if yeah. they're disconnected in a way. Uh, you know, on I, the had, phone. I had another guy that was making coffee while talking to me about, I think about global warming uh, and uh, and climate change. Uh, and just in the background, suddenly he's grinding beans. Uh, <laughs> but but anyway, I digress. Um, okay, so obviously, yeah, we're not great at multitasking. Um, if you need another example, uh, another classic example is texting and driving. The RAC Foundation, which is a British nonprofit organization that focuses on driving issues, asked 17 drivers aged 17 to 24 to use a driving simulator to see how texting affected their driving. The reaction time was around 35% slower when writing a text message, slower than driving drunk or stoned. Mm. And we had mentioned this in the last podcast. Uh, this is due to doing two visual tasks at the same time. Because apparently, if you're going to multitask, you should not do two of the same types of tasks at the same time. Yeah, because talking on the phone is certainly dis- certainly distracts. You're still, quote-unquote, multitasking mm-hmm. to a certain extent. But, but you're combining... Uh, you know, speaking auditory with visual, uh, but when you are, yeah, you know, like you say, when you're when you're driving and you're trying to text, you're combining two visual things. So both of those things, uh, the uh, performance rate drops uh, impressively. That's right. So if you're going to multitask, uh, multitask in, in the smartest way you can, um, and obviously texting and driving is not smart 
at all. But there's a good reason for that. Again, visually, you know, if you're taxing yourself in that way, there's no way that you can really give the ultimate attention to what you're doing. Yeah, because both of these, especially the driving, there's so many variables. Even though we do it enough to where it kind of becomes automatic, but there are so many variables in driving. There's so many things you have to control that uh, that the the impact of multitasking really uh, takes a toll on your performance. As we mentioned in the other podcast, if you're chewing gum while walking, you're technically doing two things at the same time, but the the required skill in both of those tasks is so low, you're 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 probably not going to see any uh, change in your ability. But if you're talking and you're walking, you are sure to miss the clown that rides past you, yeah. as we saw in another study. Exactly. Right. So let's come back to the super tasker, uh, and we touched on this a little bit in the previous episode, but now we're gonna we're gonna dive a little deeper into what this is and, and who these people are. I mean, in a in a way, they're kind of the the Kwisatz Haderach of the um, of, of 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 the the tasking world. Mm-hmm. Um, Dune fans will remember that's the the idea that it's like the perfect uh, godlike being that will deliver the planet. Right? Okay, I was just going to say bless you. <laughs> what was the name of it again? The the Quetzal's Haderach. Okay, yeah. bless you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, but yeah, the, so the idea of the, the super tasker, like I said, they're they're one one in a hundred, um, very rare. Most of us cannot multitask, but as uh, one experiment revealed, you can find individuals whose brains seem uniquely capable of handling multiple things at once. It's true. Uh, University of Utah professors David Strayer and John Watson put student subjects into a driving simulator and at the simulator, and then at the same time they received a call on a hands-free cell phone. And uh, Strayer says that they engaged in a conversation that involved memorizing strings of words that were presented as well as solving math problems. So they're driving along. They get this call, and first they're asked uh, math if these math problems are correct. They're given these examples, and then they're asked to list words in order. All right, and there are up to five math problems and words that could be concluded in a single conversation. Finally, the drivers were asked to follow another car at a specific distance. You know, keep the keep a reasonable distance between themselves and that car. Not and, crash into them. Right, not crash into them. And that's what they studied was the distance between that car to see how the conversation uh, affected uh, that distancing. All right? So most did far worse when doing both tasks than when they did only a single task. Uh, their brake reaction time was much longer, and they tended to follow the lead vehicle to greater distance. In addition, their memory and math performances suffered as well. But in in the course of all these studies, out of about a thousand students, they found around twelve who didn't have worse driving performance, and on average performed better on the memory and math tasks while they were driving. And so here we have the uh, Quitsat Haderach, the uh, the Messiah <laughs> of multitasking the quote-unquote super-taskers. So that's amazing to me because 998 of them, excuse me, 988 of them tanked, right? Yeah. But these 12, these special 12, something is going on, obviously, with them to allow them to have such recall. Now, they want to do follow-up studies about this, obviously, right. and do a little bit more MRI and get into the brain because, obviously, that's where they're going to find some... Um, answers to their questions about what's going on. Um, and we should probably dip into the brain as well and figure out what parts are active here when we're multitasking. Yes, yeah, so let's dip in with, with a melon baller, if it were. 
Okay, let me take out a little bit of the prefrontal cortex because apparently this is very important because this part of the brain plans and coordinate actions. And here's a really cool thing. In humans, the prefrontal cortex is about one-third of the entire cortex, while in dogs and cats, it's about 4 or 5%. Monkeys, about 15%. So this means the bigger the prefrontal cortex, the more flexible our behavior can be and the more we can multitask. So... Um, some people would actually argue that our early hominid ancestors had to multitask. This didn't start, um, you know, in the 20th century. Right. This, this rabid uh, multitasking, although, of course, it's gotten much more aggressive. But, you know, as soon as, as early man had to deal with multiple things going on, um, yeah. you know, maybe it's stoking a fire. And Yeah, I mean, certainly when you get into tool use and the yeah. use of cooking and it, you know, basically external digestion, you're beginning to... The, the, the human, as a as a as an organism, is beginning to expand in all of these varying occupations, and then once we, this culture builds up, and certainly once you reach the point where individuals can specialize in a given task, uh, all the more. Right. So there's an idea that it's hardwired in us. We, we need to do it. We're supposed to do it. But uh, to what degree, I guess, is the question. And to what degree have we evolved alongside uh, what we're actually capable of doing now, or sort of capable of doing? Um, what we find out is that when we are doing a couple things at once, uh, yes, we've got the, the prefrontal cortex to do it, but uh, we're demanding much more of the cognitive process. You and I have talked about this before, this idea that we have a finite amount of mental energy that right. we can sometimes bolster with food and, and whatnot. Um, but it's like a video game. You have a power meter, mm-hmm. and... Everything that happens to you in the course of a day is going to influence that power meter. And the occasional power-up may give you a little boost, but at the end of the day, it's going to wear. Yeah, but let's say like you are depleted. You you don't have you know a good um, glycose bump there with mm-hmm. a piece of food or an apple or something like that. And you're just tired and you're multitasking. You are demanding uh, a lot. You've got a big cognitive load going on. And this is when you see the brain uh, entering into what we call bottlenecking. And that's just what it sounds like, right? Nothing's really getting through because you're trying to do a bunch of tasks at once. And this is because you're doing something called task switching. Right. Now, this is, yeah, this is really interesting because it, it gets into the idea that there really isn't such than any such thing as multitasking. The idea that, well, n- not in the sense that we're doing two things at once. Uh, instead, we're more like an individual who, who instead of uh, doing one thing with one hand and one thing with the other, is switching back and forth between two tasks with both hands. If that makes any sense. Yeah, I kind of think of it as a train conductor too, right? Yeah. Like you're you're switching tracks. Yeah, right? I mean, well, we, we, there's hence the title of the the podcast, a, a, a one track mind. Uh, which is generally kind of used as a, a put-down. Oh, they've got a one-track mind. They're only thinking about one thing. But at any given moment, we can only have a one-track mind. Uh, that's just the, the extent of our uh, cognitive capabilities. And uh, you, know, I, I, you can also think of it like a, a two-deck tape player. you know? you got yeah. two decks there. you got two different tapes in there. Maybe one's Queen's Greatest Hits, and maybe the other one is Bob <laughs> Seger's Greatest Hits. But you're only going to play Bob Seger or, or Queen. You're not going to play them both at the same time. Unless you do a little mashup thing, which is going to require some pre-planning. May, and it's still just one track, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, brain scans during task switching show activity in four major areas, the prefrontal cortex, of course, uh, which is involved in shifting and focusing your attention and selecting which task to do when. And then you've got the posterior parietal lobe, which activates rules for each task you switch to. 
the anterior cingulate gyrus, monitors errors, errors, again, very important. We'll talk mm-hmm. more about that. And the premotor cortex, <laughs> it's one of those mornings, premotor cortex is preparing you to move in some way, right? That's the part that makes your hands and your legs and your feet all move together. So according to Psychology Today's article, the true cost of multitasking, each task switch might waste only one-tenth of a second. But if you do a lot of switching throughout the day, this can add up to a loss of 40% of your productivity. Yeah, it's like if you're doing two different things in two different rooms of your house. You're going to have to move back and forth between the two. And it may not be much of a distance, but the more you go back and forth, the more you're pacing around the house. Um it's, it's also interesting thinking, uh, in looking at this multitasking to, to think of it as kind of juggling as well. Mm-hmm. The idea that you have three balls and you're trying to keep at least one of them in the air at any given moment. But, uh, uh, but that, that tends to serve as a, a slightly better way of thinking about it. There's a study in the July 16th episode of Neuron uh, that suggested that our brains aren't really built to handle uh, parallel processing like we've been talking about. But uh, the good news is that uh, studies have shown that extensive training can make us better at doing two things at once or more, you know, juggling back and forth between these two uh, different things. And there are various theories on why this is the case. But uh, one of the strong ones is that with a lot of practice, certain routines become kind of automatic. Um, An example of this that came to mind actually has to do with, uh, I was reading some Roger Ebert reviews the other day because he tends to be my go-to guy, like with a lot of people, he's kind of my go-to guy for, mm-hmm. for movie reviews. And I, I ran across a, a thread where he was responding uh, to uh, some listener feedback on his review for Silent Hill, uh, the movie based on a video game that came out a few years back from uh, Christophe Gans, wonderful, imaginative French director who did uh, Brotherhood of the Wolf. And um, and Ebert was just kind of perplexed by the movie. He was just like, that ah, didn't really make sense to me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and somebody asked him a few questions about it. And Ebert uh, drew some parallels to the study. Uh, that analyze people's brain activity during video games. And when they first start playing a video game, a whole lot of the, the brain area lights up because they're, they're having to deal with new controls and new environment and new activities. But as they become better and better at the, at the game, that, that neural activity shrinks down to like just a, a very small area. Mm-hmm. And, th- and then in this, we get into the whole uh, idea of video games as a, as a release. Like, I don't want to use my whole brain. I just want to use a very little portion of it oh. and give, give my, my thinking a rest. Uh-huh. So, um, Which kind of goes into the flow state in a weird yeah, way, right? Yeah. And so the better you become at a task, the, the more of a flow state it is mm-hmm. or the more familiar you are with the various things that go into it. Like, I think of uh, activities we do on the computer, like, like um, Goodness, I used to, when I worked in newspapers, I had to use InDesign all the time to mm-hmm. build these pages. And they're all these hotkeys, you know, different combinations that, that make, that just save you enormous amounts of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you end up just committing those to memory. And then inevitably you reach that point where you're having to train someone else in how to use it. And cannot, you know, and there's like no actual memory of what any of those hotkeys are. Like I could only pull right, them up by right, doing right, them. It was right. just pure, it's like muscle memory. Yeah, just like pure muscle memory. Yeah. Uh, so I had my brain had refined it down to just the the bare minimum amount of thought required to carry it out, mm-hmm. which enabled me to do things like build pages and listen to science podcasts mm-hmm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because I used to do a lot of database work, and it was sort of the same thing. And sometimes I felt like you know, sort of like I was in the Matrix, and I was just yeah. like moving through space and time. And yeah, and it felt it emotionally fulfilling it did, because you're yeah. doing all these things at once. Yeah. Yeah, you're right, because I felt like I was uh, being really productive. Like the Quitsack Hatterack making a spreadsheet. Yeah. In that, uh, 
in that moment, I might have just because it depended on the task. Again, it could have been rote at that point. Uh, but if I had to engage a, a little bit more cognitive muscle, not so much. Now, here's the question. Yes. Men, women. Do we have a difference here in multitasking? Is the jury out? Is it true that women are great multitaskers, or is it just sort of cultural baggage? I've been thinking about this one, because in, in terms of cultural baggage, I, I mean, I can definitely see where individuals would, and I'm not, not without even dragging any science into it yet, I can see where the, the cultural idea that women are multitaskers and men are not, that both men and women could really get behind that idea. Mm-hmm. Because for women... Uh, if, if someone says, oh, well, you're a natural multitasker, it's, well, it's like, thank you. That's great because that means I'm capable of doing it. I am the, the Hitsack cataract of spreadsheets. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. And then for men, if someone says, don't, you know, don't worry, you're just not, your, your gender is not mo- about multitasking, then it's kind of like, well, whew, thank goodness. That's a, a load off my shoulders. Mm-hmm. I can only be expected to do one task well at any given time. So I've kind of got an out for all the other things I screw up in my life. All right. Well, so I'm about to mention this study. But before I do so, I will say that, and I'd like to hear from the women out there too, maybe you don't want to be known as a multitasker. Maybe you feel the cultural baggage of that. And I say that because there was a 2011 study at the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Bar Lan University in Israel. And this found that working mothers, okay, this is a family mm-hmm. of working mothers and fathers, uh, they spend about 10 more hours per week multitasking than do working fathers. So we're talking about 48.3 hours as uh, compared to 38.9 for dads, okay? The lead author of the study, Shira Offer, said when they multitask at home, for example, mothers are more likely than fathers to engage in housework or childcare activities, which are usually labor-intensive efforts. Fathers, by contrast, tend to engage in other types of activities when they multitask at home, such as talking to a third person or engaging in self-care. <laughs> <laughs> These are less burdensome experiences. So this is very interesting to me because I do think that the, the cultural norm ha- has informed the behavior. And as someone who is a working mom and a multitasker, I guess, with a capital M, you do kind of feel that sense of it. I don't feel that I'm good at it, but mm-hmm. some of these things are very rote and they're very physical and they're easy to do, but it still takes a lot of energy out of you. Yeah, that makes sense. I found it interesting that some of the older anthropology uh, kind of arguments about this were that if you go back to um, our most ancient days, you had men who had to go out and do one thing, mm-hmm. supposedly. They, like, we were hunter-gatherers, so the men went out to hunt down and kill particular animals. And then the women gathered things and looked after the children and kept the fire going and all that. Which, <clears throat> I guess, kind of, as an idea, it's kind of interesting, but but uh, but apparently holds no real Real sway over the argument. See, the thing about that too is that not only are they keeping, they're tending the children in the fire, but they're also foraging because yeah. most of the diet is is predicated on their ability to go out and find foods that are, that are non meat. Right, and then also the the men, like, and we're again going with sort of a non historical, vague idea of the past when we're discussing this. But uh, but yeah, if you're going out to hunt an animal, it's not quite. As simple as just one single task, mm-hmm. you're having to deal with with weapon uh, crafting, uh, up weapon upkeep. Even if that weapon is just like a sharpened stone or a bone, you know, uh, still you got to keep it in good repair. You're having to possibly track animals, and and if you're doing it on foot, you're, you're talking about a, a rather labor intensive uh, hunt there. So I, I don't even buy that that hunting for food in in the in our 
ancient in the ancient times would have been a, a single one track mind kind of a deal. Right, right. So what I'm proposing is I think that men can multitask just as well as women, but perhaps with some cultural stuff going on there. Yeah. However, we have to talk about the corpus callosum because uh, apparently in women, or not apparently, uh, we know for sure that this part of the brain, which handles communication between the two hemispheres, is actually wider than in men's brains, huh. which has made some people wonder whether or not um, this helps to synthesize information better in women, to communicate better in both sides of the hemispheres, uh, but we don't have any really big conclusive evidence that says this allows women to multitask better. Along the same lines, uh, there was a French uh, National Institute of Health and Medical Research study, and they took 32 right-handed people, and they were asked to match some letters. And, of course, given this is a study of the brain, of course, we had FR, uh, fMRIs uh, loaded up as well, mm-hmm. scanning the brain, seeing what's flowing around, what kind of activity is taking place. And it's also important that there is money on the line. There's a financial reward for the participants in this uh, study to match things up correctly. All right. So during this task, both hemisphere, hemispheres of the brain's uh, medial frontal cortex, which is involved in motivation, lights up. Mm-hmm. All right. Then re- the researchers uh, shook it up. They introduced a second task where the subjects had to match like uppercase letters in addition to matching like lowercase letters with uh, uh, separately occurring uh, reward tallies. So uh, what they found was the subject's brains uh, divided the two reward-based goals between the two sides of the region uh, of the brain. So what what they ended up uh, finding here was that, okay, the area of the brain that was highly active in the observed multitasking behavior was the, was the frontopolar cortex, which organizes pending goals while the brain completes another task. And uh, this is especially well-developed in humans. Uh, but they also, uh, the, the, um, the scientists also argued that humans have this problem, though, of deciding between more than two alternatives. Uh, and a possible explanation is that they cannot keep in mind and switch back and forth between three or more alternatives. Oh, uh, okay. So we're the, basically A or B. Uh, if you start yeah. doing A, B, and C, then then the, the cognitive load increases dramatically. Okay, so again, there's like that switch on the track, right? Yeah. Either or. Yeah. Uh, this was p- particularly interesting when I think to uh, one of my favorite uh, authors, uh, R. Scott Baker, has a series of fantasy books. I mentioned them before. Um, uh, the first one in the series is The Darkness That Comes Before, and it, um, he has this whole, he, he himself is, uh, uh, heavy into psychology and neuroscience and weaves all of that through this book. Even though the book deals with, uh, with magic and, uh, and, and the like, and there's sorcerers, he, he's very into the neuroscience of how that works. And particularly, there's a, there's a type of magic in the books called the gnosis. And it's revealed eventually in the books that it works by holding two different interpretations of the same spell uh, chant in your mind at the same time. Hmm. So part, so being able to to work uh, these acts of magic involves the cognitive process of holding two things in your mind, two meanings uh, that are parallel at the same time. And in the books, there's a, a there's a special character, uh, a superhuman that emerges, who's able to work even greater uh, works of magic because he can hold three different ideas in his mind at the same time. So I find that that to be a, a really interesting take on magic by combining it with uh, sort of what we know uh, through neuroscience about uh, our ability to multitask. 
But it's like mental scrolls of, of magic in our minds that we're trying to Yeah, yeah. Achieve. Multitasking is a kind of magic in that, in that <laughs> regard. All right. Um, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about the cognitive and physiological costs of multitasking, uh, like on short-term memory, for instance. All right, we're back. And uh, we're going to look a little bit more at multitasking and what all of this multitasking, or at least these attempts at multitasking, do to our minds. Okay, so we talked about bottlenecking. We we talked about this ability to keep some things in our minds. Well, it turns out that, of course, this all has to do with short-term memory and committing short-term memory into long-term memory if you can. Um, so, of course, if you're multitasking, if you're, um, let's say you're studying for an exam, mm-hmm. but you're listening to music or you're watching TV, turns out that your short-term memory is going to be taxed and you're probably not going to get a lot of recall out of that experience. Um, our short-term memories can only store between five and nine things at once. So when information doesn't make it into short-term memory, it can't be transferred into long-term memory for recall later. Okay, That's why if you're watching TV while you're studying, it's not going to be as effective. So if you can't recall it, you can't use it. Now, I did also find in one of our, our studies we were looking at, they did argue that um, you know it depends on what you're doing. Because I was very concerned about the music thing. Mm-hmm. Because I listen to music all the time while I work, so I, was, I started thinking, well, maybe I'm doing all this wrong, and, that, <laughs> and I need to cut out the, the music. But they did say that for some people, listening to music while working actually makes them more creative because they're using different cognitive functions, which I think lines up well with what I've, I've sort of observed before, mm-hmm. is that if I'm doing something that really requires me to think, then I can't listen to anything with lyrics in it. Right. We've talked about that before, that lyrics sometimes can mess with what you're trying to do, right? Because yeah. you hear those messages. Because I'm trying to do language, and then I'm also, if I'm also absorbing language, then, then that's going to hit both of those, uh, those categories. Right. But, you know, so if you're listening to something instrumental in your research or trying to learn something or studying, mm-hmm. then that should be fine. Uh, research shows that people use different areas of the brain for learning and storing new information when they are distracted. So brain scans of people who are distracted or multitasking show activity in the striatum, and this is a region of the brain involved in learning new skills. Uh, brain scans of people who are not distracted show activity in the hippocampus, And this is a region involved in storing and recalling information. So, again, it points to this idea that if you are unitasking, if you're studying, if you're researching, you're doing this one thing, then you're engaging your hippocampus more. And that's good because then you're storing those memories and your recall for that material is going to be better later. Now, another thing that multitasking affects is stress and stress levels. In uh, Professor Gloria Marks' April 2012 study, and we talked about this in the last podcast, um, this, this landmark study, she found that after only 20 minutes of interrupted performance, people reported significantly higher stress, frustration, workload, effort, and pressure. So it's like this low-lying level of stress that people put upon themselves when they are multitasking. And uh, psychologist David Meyer at the University of Michigan found that multitasking contributes to the release of stress hormones and adrenaline, which can cause, of course, we know this, long-term health problems if not controlled. And it also contributes to the loss of short-term memory. 
So what you're, the, the sort of story that comes out here is that if you're multitasking throughout the day and you're doing a lot, uh, what you find is that you've got that low level of anxiety building because it always feels like those loops are open, those loops that we talked about of mm-hmm. the, the tasks that we need to complete. Yeah, and that also kind of falls back into some of the stereotypes about, say, busy moms, you know, being kind of frazzled or anybody that's really got a lot on their plate being a bit frazzled because mm-hmm. they are doing so many things and there's so many loops open that it's uh, having it's taking an impact on their short-term memory and their ability to perform. And, um, you know, in the, in the case of, say, studying for an exam or researching, uh, if you are multitasking, you're trying to do a deep dive into a topic mm-hmm. and you're switching between tasks and, you know, in an hour you've maybe gleaned only 10 minutes of that research, that's not a deep dive. That's not a lot of time to think in depth about any one thing. So, of course, it behooves you to try to unitask in those instances where it's really important to commit that to memory or you really need to concentrate on something. Yeah. This also leads us into this area uh, referred to as attention deficit trait, which I found really interesting. Now, this is not attention deficit uh, disorder. disorder. This is uh, attention deficit. is a trait that emerges due to the environment that you've put yourself in. So you're putting yourself in this environment where there's all the stimuli coming at you. There's all these, there are all these different tasks that you've, uh, you've put before yourself. You're multitasking or trying to. And it uh, generates uh, basically the symptoms of attention deficit disorder. I think what's interesting about this is that, again, it's um, it's something in our environment, and it's something that we condition ourselves into. Mm-hmm. Now, it's a pretty new idea. Uh, we've been studying attention deficit disorder for, for years and years. Uh, uh, but this idea of attention deficit trait really comes out of a, a 2005 Harvard Business Review article, Overloaded Circuits, Why Smart People Underperform. And this was by Glenn Wilson, uh, the guy who uh, who wrote this study, and, uh, and 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 most of these ideas really uh, hinge back to his uh, uh, his, his uh, uh, studies regarding uh, attention deficit mm-hmm. uh, as it emerges again as uh, as uh, as a symptom of environmental stimuli. Yeah, and he did the study for Hewlett Packard um, to look at this productivity of multitasking. Uh, what I think is cool that he discovered, well, not so cool, but interesting, is that he discovered is that the average worker's functioning IQ, um, a temporary qualitative state here, we're talking about, drops 10 points when multitasking. And that is more than double the four-point drop that occurs when someone smokes marijuana. Wow. So, I mean, that really, I mean, especially for anyone out there in a, in a management position, I mean, it really should make you think twice about uh, putting new responsibilities on on an employee, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. you're basically taking a notch out of their IQ with with each task, until you just reduce them to a a uh, just a, a mumbling ball of goo with a, a whole bunch of spreadsheets to fill up. Yes, just you can hear the stress buzzing off of that yeah. person. Yeah. Um, but you know, of course, that leads to this idea of how can you best rein this in and manage it? And there's something called the eighty twenty rule. Uh, this says that 20% of the work you do gives 80% of the impact and effectiveness. So you focus on ident- identifying the 20% of your tasks that are really effective, and then you do them one at a time. I tend to, I guess I tend to sort of do uh, maybe a take on that, where I, since I'm better in the morning, and I guess it makes sense because I haven't had as much time to uh, deplete my cognitive mm-hmm. uh, abilities, uh, pick the things that are most important and require the 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 most amount of thought and creativity to do those first and then do the other things later? That's the smart way to approach it. But, of course, as we found in the last podcast, that people usually do the the inverse. They typically um, 
kind of distract themselves and multitask earlier in the day. And then they they batten down the hatches and concentrate later in the day. But you're right. That's the way to do it is in the morning is to unitask and then multitask later in the day because you have more energy in the morning and you're fresh and you haven't become ego depleted by all the choices of that day. So there you have it, multitasking, um, the single track mind. Multitasking is magic, all of these uh, various ways of looking at it, which it really did force me to, to reevaluate the way I approach all the things I have to do in my life and, uh, and, uh, and, and really how we function as human beings. Um, but, of course, none of this is necessarily new uh, because uh, we've been, people have been figuring this out for, uh, for ages. Uh, in fact, back in, seven, in the 1740s, Lord Chesterfield offered the following advice. He said, quote, there is time enough for everything in the course of the day if you do but one thing at a time. But there is not time enough in the year if you will do two things at a time. So Lord Chesterfield knew the uh, the importance of really focusing in on a single task, and he knew that you'd have to be a wizard to do two things at once. You know, uh, purportedly, even Albert Einstein weighed in on this. And uh, this is from a Scientific American article about multitasking. Uh, he is purported to have said, any man who can drive safely while kissing a pretty girl is simply not giving the kiss the attention it deserves. Yeah. That rogue. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, yeah, I mean, it just gets down to if you do try and do two things at once, you're not going to do either thing well. No. So. All right. Well, let's uh, let's call over the robot now and uh, get a little listener mail. First off, we heard from Gregory, who's responding to um, some stuff I recently said about pugs, the dog uh, mm-hmm. breed, because I used to think of the pug as just kind of this um, amusing but ultimately kind of worthless breed that it was just kind of bred into a corner physiologically and just wasn't capable of much. But then I saw a helper dog that was a pug at the train station. So Gregory writes in and says, Robert, 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 about pugs, my father-in-law had a beef farm, and his dog, a pug, became one of his farm helpers. Terminator, that's the dog's name, uh, may have been tiny, but he was one of the best dogs I have ever seen to help direct the cows. Since Terminator was so small, uh, he never got stepped on or kicked. He was never made to help, but he liked to do it. As soon as he saw Tom get uh, get the, the barn closed, Term was at the door, jumping and turning circles, waiting for the door to open. I think we were all shocked the first time we saw him in action, but uh, he was tiny but impressive. So that little tidbit comes to us from, from Gregory. That was uh, very interesting. And then we also heard from our listener, Marta, um, and she writes in and says, uh, Me again from Portugal. Just a quick comment on your Walls uh, podcast. I am a big fan of Murakami, the Japanese writer, uh, but he has a book that was quite hard for me to get into, Hard-Boiled Wonderland for the End of the World. It's quite fantastic about a guy whose brain is being experimented on, and it describes two parallel realities, one of his actual life developing and one of what is going on inside his brain at the same time, the inner world. But this is a very real world comprised within a long wall. The character arrives at this city... And as he walks past the gates, he is forced to leave his shadow there, for it is that link, it is the link to his real life and his memories of that life. The story then develops inside the city, and the presence of the wall is quite amazing, um, omnipotent, unbreached, unbreakable, an actual limit between the two worlds. He is confronted with the fact that there is no way to go back through the wall or the gates, so he needs to find another way. No spoilers, I'll just drop here. Uh, anyway, this is the strangest wall I could remember. Thanks again, Marta. 
Well, I like that dropping the shadow as a narrative technique. Yeah. You know, because then, then that's sort of like a, what was the movie um, about dreaming with Leo DiCaprio? Leo, like I know him. Um, <laughs> oh, um, you're talking about uh, the Christopher Nolan film uh, Inception. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know how they knew when they were dreaming and they were in reality, not reality. They had the turning top. But I like this idea of not seeing your shadow and realizing that you're in this altered universe. Yeah. That sounds really amazing. It, it also reminds me. Of a book I've not read, I really want to see the city, read the city in the city by uh, China Melville, but uh, and, and I think it maybe falls along similar lines. But Murakami is great. I've, I haven't read this particular book. Um, have, you, have you read any Murakami? Before? I haven't. Um, Kafka on the Shore was a big one. Okay, and, yeah, I know uh, that one. The Wind Up Bird Chronicle, mm-hmm. uh, both long, but very much in a. I, I think maybe the and I'm not no expert by any means on, on Japanese literature, uh, certainly, but certainly they're. There seems to be sort of a, a long form aspect of his work that maybe doesn't doesn't um, jibe immediately mm-hmm. with uh, with a Western reader, but but it's he, but he's a great writer. It's it's very satisfying, very imaginative. Uh, one of the books had talking cats in it, and uh, but then also one of the books had a man being skinned alive. So it, he he kind of uh, he gives you various aspects of like everyday Manusa plus some. Imaginative, almost kind of cute stuff, but then also there's a there's there's room for wacky and or horrible happenings as well. So blood guts and kawaii. Yeah, yeah, kind of nice. So hey, if you would like to reach out to us and chat with us a little bit about Murakami, about walls, about uh, multitasking, are you a multitasker? Do you think you're a multitasker? What happens when you try and multitask? Uh, and then what happens when you're able to set everything aside and focus on that one thing in your life? Or, you know, you can have multiple things in your life that you can really get into a flow state with. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Tumblr. On both of those, we go by the handle Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And if you go to Twitter, you'll find us with the handle Blow the Mind. And you can always drop us a line at BlowTheMind at Discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.